it and jump to their little corner nook or whatever. Yeah, when I first started dating Nicole, actually, she she said she was going to do the same thing, ledges. And I was like, oh, that's genius. Man, you know what I was kind of thinking of last time I was in the office? Because, <laughs> you know, it went off a couple times, but... I was thinking about the the custom ringtones and it didn't really dawn on me that until Brenda mentioned it, that people don't really do that anymore. And it's because they don't even really have sound coming from their phones anymore. Like right. she was just like, my phone's always on vibrate. Yeah. And then if I need to get to it or if someone's calling, it's, you know, it's vibrating on my wrist. I got my, my Apple watch. Right. I wonder how many people just like straight never take it off vibrate. Because they have a, a watch or something attached to it. Right, right. Yeah, I uh, that does change the game. I always just kept it near me or on me to the point where I just you could hear it. I could always feel right, hear it, feel it. It was when it was buzzing, and I always, I always felt like when I was in college, I didn't have a, a cell phone. It just mm-hmm. wasn't part of the thing. Um, we weren't allowed to have cell phones. Actually, we were just going. We all we could have were. Um, phones in our room so we couldn't be reached and so that set the expectation for everybody else that tried to get a hold of us hey look all you can oh. do is leave a voicemail on their on the on the phone in their room i gotta play one more time i mean the song slaps <laughs> <laughs> Go, go, Power Ranger. But obviously, I, I did that for a reason. So the whole news of Jason David Frank, a.k.a. Tommy Oliver or uh, the Green Ranger from the OG Power Rangers. He passed away not too long ago, the end of 2022. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to do as like a, you know, like a, a tribute to him. An homage. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was a huge fan of Power Rangers growing up as a kid. Oh, yeah. And same. I mean, at that age, who wasn't? When when it w- I was of that age, when it was good, boy, it was good. I mean, outside of Power Rangers, do you really think like any of the actors would fuck with Jason David Frank? Uh, no, no, no. No, that guy was like, he had that wild ass kick. He had that like Jean-Claude Van Damme. See ya! <laughs> yeah, the jumping roundhouse. Yeah, the jumping roundhouse, exactly. You want a roundhouse kick to the back of the head when I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> What was that? Rex Quando. <laughs> it's Rex Quando. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It's sad to know that Jason David Frank was struggling with a lot of personal demons. And I, I just want to say, I hope his family is doing all right. Yeah. Yeah. Same actually. No, I'm glad you uh, mentioned that. And that was, yeah, that ringtone when you started playing it at, uh, at work, I was like, yeah, it deserves, it deserves some airtime. Um, I also wanted to, because of the type of movie we're going to be covering today and who created this film, (laughs) I wanted to see if uh, you can kind of shed some light on your blockbuster days. (laughs) I feel like blockbuster in and of itself also just, it deserves some recognition because man, it was such an awesome time. Oh dude, absolutely. Absolutely. Dude, I, I, you know, it did tank, obviously we all know that now, but um it was glorious. I had nothing but great, great experiences going to one and then, um, and working at that one. There were, there was awesome. It was honestly like that last hurrah was, was great. And my first manager, he was, he was so, 
such a positive influence, dude. He was it was a great first manager to have. In so many ways, I see similar traits to. Uh, that was your first job. That was my first job. Yeah, first job. I was eighteen, and that's a pretty I, cool first job, dude. Honestly, it was cool. We got along so well. Everybody, we we were opening up a new store. So I got trained in an old store while our new, that's how new the construction was. They were still finishing the building when I was going through training. Was that around the time where they're opening new stores daily? This was, um, this was just after we, we, yeah, I don't know. This was kind of the tail end of that. And I remember sitting down in the space, like we built that store. Basically we put it together piece by piece at a certain point, like the, the walls and the racks themselves were no longer those white, like bookshelves the way they are, where they're, they're completely just, yeah, they're like, uh, actual like see-through through like great right exactly that was that that was that new model so we did all that stuff the very end of it i remember we were sitting down on the ground all of us eating lunch and um just sitting around it felt like just a group of friends and i remember the guy was like the regional manager he was there and he was he was quizzing us he was just just asking us for feedback he's like what do you think we could do to compete with netflix you know and that's and oh so netflix was on the radar it was already it was already coming up and he's like what do you think we could do and, you know, of course, people's initial, some people just said, hey, why don't we just do the same thing? We have way more customer base. They're still building theirs up. Our, we have a name and people recognize that thing. So why don't we do that? And, you know, the whole reason why we started doing this podcast in the, in initially was because we talked tons of movies when we were at work. And it was it was fun to have somebody to who appreciated movies to the extent that, that I grew up loving movies. Was that why you initially were drawn to work at Blockbuster? I love movies. Why wouldn't I want to work here? <laughs> right, exactly. That was, that was part of it. Yeah. That the other part was that I was, um, I was studying video production at the art Institute in Santa Monica. So I was like, Oh, we would get, you know, we would get homework assignments that were, you know, watch this movie, analyze this movie, whatever. And at Blockbuster, as an employee, you got five free movie rentals. And I just thought, what the fuck? Like, this is so fucking cool. I love renting movies anyway. So it was really cool. It worked out, but I would I would get to um, analyze all sorts of movies, had access. and Blockbuster is so nostalgic for me. I, I, I had such a, an awesome time. It was definitely a big part of my childhood. My dad loved renting movies all the time. Uh, I... I remember we kind of started out as a family, like going to those mom and pop kind of oh, uh, same, video rental same, places. Same, same. And then eventually we graduated to getting a Blockbuster membership because oh. you can just walk in. You know, you had to have a membership. So my dad, Stephanie, and I, we would frequent the Sterling Cinemas in uh, San Bernardino. And uh, I think now it's a Regency theater, but mm. yeah, after we'd see a movie there, we would drive around kind of around the building. There was a thrifties over there. Ooh, It's a Rite Aid now, but it was a thrifties back then. And right. so we'd go in, we would each get a cone, mm-hmm. you know, we would, we would finish that kind of just like chilling in the parking lot, talking about the movie we just watched. Yeah. And yeah. then after that, we would walk to Blockbuster because it's in the same parking lot as thrifties. Okay. But it was like in the middle of the parking lot. It was kind of odd. But yeah, I was pretty much just surrounded by parking lots. And at that time, that Blockbuster needed it because those parking spots were filled up. Bro, that was it. The ritual was like he would go in, get his three to four movies for the weekend. And uh, usually it was like a shitty sci-fi B movie. I think I mentioned that before. Oh, right, right. If there was like a major mainstream movie that was out that weekend, then he would rent that. But yeah, you know, we would head home and... 
and then would chill for the rest of the weekend. And that was kind of like, if it wasn't every weekend, it'd be like every other weekend. So that's fun. That, that, that sounds like some happy memories. Like what for you made that experience so enjoyable of just going to Blockbuster? Like I'm interested in, in hearing your thoughts. Like what was it about the experience? It's like endless possibilities, honestly. <laughs> the way it was, it was set up was Blockbuster had like an entrance and an exit. You always had to walk around the right, registers right. and then you would have to exit. But yeah, you would walk in. Of course, you would have like your shelves in the middle of the floor, but along the back wall, here are the uh, the new movies that just got released. And I loved walking from one end of the, the back wall to the other end. You walk up and down the aisles and mm-hmm. you're, just, you're just browsing, you know? Yeah, exactly. See if anything catches your eye. I was going to say, no, you, you mentioned uh, in light of, of the movie that we're reviewing today and the, and the director himself. At the time, I don't even know if I was really paying that close attention to the fact that Tarantino had be, had been working in a movie store before he became a director. <laughs> and uh, um, I was like, what the heck? Like, how cool is that? And he just... So that that wasn't your inspiration necessarily? No, actually, it wasn't. I'll be real. I, I, just, I just thought... I'm studying video production. I love making movies. I want to be a good a, a screenwriter at the time is what I was thinking. That's what I went in there with that idea was, oh, I'm going to be able to watch a bunch of fucking free movies and um, I'm going to video production school. What, what, this is the this is it. This I fucking have arrived. This is what could more, what more could I possibly want? Kind of a cool coincidence, though, huh? It is. Yeah, it is actually. Yeah. Should we mob it? Let's mob it, dude. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to <laughs> Affliction Nato's podcast, episode 20, the very first episode of 2023. My name is Eric, and the other voice occupying your head this time is a man of many trades, good friend, colleague, and co-host, Michael. Yo, yo, yo. Thank you to all the listeners out there for joining us. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all of the major podcast streaming services. New episodes drop on the first Saturday of each month, 5 a.m. Pacific. Affliction Oz is a monthly podcast where we primarily talk about films that range from mind-numbing to mind-blowing. We also sometimes cover TV shows and other forms of media. Just like all of our other episodes, we will be getting into spoilers here, and there will be only the healthiest amount of expletives tossed in. You have been warned. Michael, do you think our audience is ready? They're not ready. They ain't ready for this? They ain't ready. Ladies and gentlemen, if you ain't ready, then get ready, because in this episode, we will be discussing (laughs) the wild comedy once upon a time in hollywood released in 2019 directed by quentin tarantino damn i think this is technically tarantino's 10th film that he's directed hmm. but it's considered his ninth overall due to the kill bill movies it's two separate movies but it's one story mm, basically okay. so i think that's considered one ah uh. You know, with volume one and volume two. Mm-hmm. The reason why I bring that up is because Tarantino has gone on record to say that he would retire from filmmaking after his 10th film and would likely move on to writing novels or film literature. And he also said that he would probably retire by age 60, which <laughs> he would be turning this March. So, oh shit. I don't think he's going to retire before his 10th film. Oh Let, shit. Let's just say that. That's crazy. What the hell? No, I hope not. I hope not. He's got more in him for sure. Tarantino is one of my favorite directors. Pulp Fiction is one of my all-time favorite movies. Kill Bill Volume 1, Death Proof, which I feel like doesn't really get the recognition it deserves. I, I feel like it's actually probably the least known out of all of his movies. And, uh, of course, Inglourious Bastards, you know? Mm-hmm. Can't forget about that movie. 
same inglorious bastards uh uh <laughs> just shocking that movie just you will all you will be caught off guard and man does he know how to pick a fucking cast dude he I don't, I don't even know if I really knew, um, Christoph Waltz was nobody as far as I was concerned. I had no idea who he was, but boy, he fucking just stole the show. He was like the, he grabs you in that performance, which we're not getting into just yet. I mean, we'll we'll have to do a review of that, but it was akin to Gary Oldman's performance in The Professional, in my opinion. He grabbed his, he had that charisma, like you, you kind of, you like him, but then you hate him at the same time. It's such a confusing thing you're like oh he's very confusing he's he's so damn good that you can't help but not to like him in that movie exactly so so you know again just a testament to to tarantino just having this vision and choosing just the right right players so to speak does he always use the same casting director because holy shit the casting is more often than not fantastic in all of his movies and i i feel like what's cool about it too is he'll find these relatively unknown people and he makes stars out of them I feel like they have the potential to be stars and he sees that in them and he helps or, or he, he knows how to how to bring it out of them. Like That's he gives it. them the perfect role or something, yeah. you know, that like draws that out of them. Yeah, absolutely. That That's what it seems like to me. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, again, even just with the screen time that Michael Fassbender got in, in Inglourious Bastards, that was like, but but uh, the same could be said for Margaret Qualley. She's you know she was in that, I and mean, she's done other stuff since, or been been in other stuff before. Margaret Qualley all of a sudden is just popping up everywhere, and you know she's got that. She did really well in that show, uh, Made or whatever. So again, he just has mm-hmm. this knack for finding people, and when he finds them, he really like she shines in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, honestly, she steals the show. Every scene that she's in, she does a great job. Also, I did not know that's how you pronounced it. I I would have totally butchered it, probably. Oh, <laughs> Margaret Qualley. Yeah, Andy McDowell's uh, daughter. I actually thought Andy McDowell was was super cute back in the day. Oh and my goodness, dude, absolutely. Margaret is super cute in this movie. Yeah, she she is, and it's just yeah. So you see all this personality, all these facial expressions, really, really fun, interesting. It just it just catches you. You're you're captivated. That's what I like about it. her too. She she's very expressive. She is exactly, and that's what makes it so fun. You know, to see her hitchhiking and uh, and just it, those faces, the pouty yeah, the faces, faces and she stuff made yeah. exactly the tears. It was so good. It was just so so funny. And Brad Pitt just enjoying in his character enjoying that and uh he, he found it charming yeah. is charming as exactly. I, I think the audience did as well of course and he's not yeah he's just he's just he found it charming and why not you know what was cool about this film too is that tarantino knew early on that he wanted to title the movie once upon a time in hollywood because hmm. it, it sort of has this fairy tale flair to it I guess he actually started conceptualizing the plot while he was filming Death Proof, which is one of my favorites. <laughs> right. And uh, Kurt Russell's character in Death Proof is a stuntman. Oh, shit. His, his name is Stuntman Mike. And uh-huh. his character obviously performs a lot of dangerous scenes in that movie. So Kurt Russell had a longtime stunt double named John Casino. And Tarantino thought it was such an intriguing relationship between Russell and Casino because Russell was so loyal to Casino and actually asked Tarantino to use him during filming of Death Proof. Wow. I don't know. It's almost like a brotherhood. Wow. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. That's a that's a cool little tidbit there. Yeah, I didn't I didn't realize that. Oh, man. Kurt Russell is just such a cool, cool guy anyway. 
Oh, yeah. Love Kurt Russell. Just love Kurt Russell. Randy in this one. He is like the Christoph Waltz of that movie. That's all I'm going to say. But um, it's it's funny because Brenda, when I was rewatching Once Upon a Time with Brenda, and immediately she drew comparisons from Cliff Booth to Death Proof's stuntman Mike because they're both stuntmen. And mm. um, she was actually thinking that it would have been fun if this was almost in like the same universe. Yeah, no, that, that's so funny. I mean, I haven't seen uh, Death Proof yet. I need to definitely do that. And that's a really cool connection to, to make there. And that he's in this movie. Ah, dude, so many cool people in this movie. Such a... Mm-hmm. Death Proof is an easy one to miss because it was originally released as part of the double feature, the Grindhouse double feature. So... I remember I went to go see it with my dad, of course, <laughs> and mm. it was such a awesome experience that the whole experience that like joint project between Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez. So the first movie was Planet Terror done by Robert Rodriguez, and then Death Proof was the second movie. So to start off this grindhouse experience, you you saw like three fake trailers for like movies that were not a real thing, but they were, they were actually done by real life directors. So Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino went to famous directors and asked them to supply them with a fake trailer for like a, a <laughs> shitty B movie. And so they all were like, Oh dude, I'm down, you know, hell yeah, I'll send you something. <laughs> so there's this horror movie called don't it's, it's so dumb, but like the whole, uh, trailer is basically like don't open that door don't look outside don't 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 (laughs) there was also machete which actually was made into a full-length movie by Mm. robert rodriguez machete that's one of the notable fake trailers from that grindhouse double feature Mm. but man that whole experience was amazing i i loved it that's special for sure and i I appreciate that tarantino whenever he releases a, a new movie does have Something like that for them, you know, really, really great. Um, like that double feature you were talking about. I know when he did uh, Hateful Eight and also with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he did it on um, like that large format. Was that the 35 millimeter or something like that? No, it's like 72 or something like that. It's like oh, he used. Damn. Yeah, it's so special. It's a, it, it has to be viewed on a very specific, uh, viewed at very specific theaters. Uh, so uh, I think there was one in, in somewhere in Hollywood. I want to say there's one in at the uh, Universal Studios. This movie has an ensemble cast like no other, and I I don't want to you know spend too much time going down the list of oh, all the people that, that are in this movie. But I I will touch on the three main characters in this movie. So Leonardo DiCaprio as Rick Dalton, the main protagonist that found success in the the Western TV uh, show Bounty Law but now struggles to come to terms with the fact that he may be declining in popularity. And then we have Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth, Rick's stump double and personal assistant, as well as best friend. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a mystique about Cliff as nothing really scares him. And I mean, he can, he can definitely fight, you know, he can hold his own. So mm-hmm. uh, there's also the, the rumor that he may or may not have <laughs> murdered his wife, Billy. Yeah. Yeah. And gotten and away, with, gotten it away with it. Yeah. 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 And so we have Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, actress that is married to the successful film director Roman Polanski, whom are both next door neighbors to Rick. Uh, Sharon is also pregnant with Polanski's child in this movie and a very sweet person that likes to have fun and seems to get along with just about everyone. 
Mm. And so those are the three kind of focal characters that the movie covers. But uh, man, there's so much going on. So many people in this movie. It's Mm -hmm. pretty wild. That they interact with. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was your initial thought of this movie? Because this is your very first time seeing it, right? Right. Uh, My initial thought was... um... What a ride! I don't know. It was it, it it was fun. It just felt really good. I was I was laughing. I mean, I was here. I was with my AirPods in, and I was laughing out loud. Like there were some points just just got me. So yeah, funny. Did you have any um, preconceived notions about it before you watched it? Like just off of the trailers or anything like that? Mm. Or did you think it was like the subject matter wasn't going to be as interesting? No, um, I really. I didn't know a whole lot about it. I mean, I knew that it was, it took place in the sixties. I knew that it knew that it had to deal with Charles Manson was going to be in it at some point. It had to do with Sharon. Tate. The fact that Sharon Tate was, uh, you know, was in it, you know, uh, a la Margot Robbie. I was, I was like, okay. Yeah. It lets you know that, that that's going to involve the Manson family in some fashion. Yeah. Right. Right. So I, I, I could just, I could surmise that that was going to be part of it. But other than that and the trailer, it just being kind of funny, I think the one thing that grabbed me and made me laugh out loud when I first, uh, when I first saw the trailer was when, <laughs> when DiCaprio, oh no, <laughs> there's a chihuahua barking in the, in the hall that I can't, um, Oh, I was like, is that your guess's dog? I didn't think you guys had a dog. No, no, no. It's just a neighbor's uh, chihuahua. Anyway, sorry about that. What cracked me up was DiCaprio when all I, all I saw was this girl whispers in his ear, that was the best acting I've ever seen in my entire life. And he gets all choked up. <laughs> He's got the tears. He was, he was, yeah, he was trying to hold yeah, it like back. trying to hold it back like clenching his fist and was that I, in the that was in the trailer it was actually in the trailer it was one of the last things i remember seeing in the trailer and i i fucking burst out laughing just seeing that i was like I, not knowing anything about it it, hit, it hits different when you actually you see what leads up to it and you kind of you see the whole context of it yeah right but the way that it was done in a really fun way and the, the way the music that had been playing during the trailer stopped just so you could hear this little scene this little back her saying this to him and what That's his right. reaction it was fucking hilarious dude so i my preconceived notion was going to be it was going to be more lighthearted. it was going to be funny even though it's going to be dealing with sharon tate i was like i have no idea what to expect i had heard that it was a reimagining of uh, of things kind of like inglorious bastards so i was like sure, okay yeah. I had an idea that it wasn't going to necessarily end tragically the way that it re- that it did initially. The movie opens, uh, of course, as I said, with uh, Hollywood actor Rick Dalton, star of the 1950s TV Western series Bounty Law, kind of fearing that his career might be fading, you know, and he's, he's starting to uh, like really become self-conscious about that. And um, recently his, his roles have been more of like guest appearances as heavies, which is a, a showbiz term for a villain or a bad guy. Mm-hmm. So his agent, Marvin Schwartz, played by Al Pacino, advises him to take uh, take up the opportunity to go to Italy and play in some spaghetti westerns. But Dalton is actually kind of sad by this. You know, he's like, really? Like, that's what you think of me? He, he thinks of these spaghetti westerns as being beneath him, basically. Yeah. Excuse me. First of all, it's Schwarz. <laughs> Not Schwartz. Schwartz. Um, yeah, yeah, he does. You know, it's funny. This feels... I, I, so I saw Elvis in theaters recently, or, you know, when it was out in theaters. And now that you're... The way that you're explaining this character, I'm like, God, this felt so familiar. And now I see it. Yeah, that's right. So he's... It was like when Elvis was sort of on the outs, right? He was no longer relevant as he was, as he had been for so long. And so it was like... Uh, 
you know, the last thing Rick I could see wanting to do was, was more of the thing that he'd done before. Like, I'm kind of over that, you know, he's being typecast now, right? Oh, he's a, he's considered a heavy now because he's done it before. He's doing, he's done it enough times to where he was starting to be known just for that. Ironically, I feel like Leonardo DiCaprio himself was kind of almost stuck in this, this uh, charming boyish typecast. He he's definitely done a lot of different roles since then. And I, I feel like he, he has some good variety to it. He's definitely chosen his roles very well, but I, I have no doubt that, yeah, he's, he's had to shed that, um, that image of just being sort of that pretty boy and uh, always being this, the uh, romantic. Now we have Dalton's best friend <laughs> and stunt double Cliff Booth played by Brad Pitt, of course. And for an older guy, because you can definitely tell Brad Pitt has aged quite a bit, but man, this guy is, he's in good shape yeah exactly absolutely dude dude's taking care of himself and uh it has aged well also this is a fun character because he doesn't really say a whole lot and he doesn't really need to i think a lot of his charming performance of cliff booth comes from just his facial expressions and his body language you know and how he he's like reacting to the situations going on around him but uh yeah cliff booth has to drive dalton around town because dalton apparently had like a few DUI arrests and <laughs> his driver's license was suspended so so now he's he's like a chauffeur as well as a best friend and stunt double and all that other stuff i like how he tells that too i like how he he, he lies to schwarz and says like oh yeah no it's uh he he said he, he had some errands to run in nearby so he's you know giving me a ride or whatever and it's like no he like freeze frames it and it's like no actually what really happened was this <laughs> Got some DUIs, got his license taken away, so I drive him around now too. <laughs> and see, he's he's even self conscious about that. Like he can't even tell people the truth because he's embarrassed. I wonder how many how many people he tells this lie to, or if he just comes up with different stories and tells different people all these all sorts of things that aren't true. But yeah, so there's that, there's that. But also, even though Brad Pitt's character Cliff says that to the cat, so basically says that oh, like with a voiceover when it freeze frames, he doesn't he doesn't. Um, judge him for it you know he just says it this is what he does this is it and because and, he really is his friend he really does care about him really does look out for him and uh yeah i don't know it's just, i think it's i think cool. it's mutual though like they it's not just like a uh dalton is taking advantage of booth's kindness or something like he i think they really care for each other you know they they look out for each other they know each other really well and i think that uh booth knows that uh you know dalton can kind of become a little self-absorbed and maybe doesn't realize certain things um, and so how he's coming. He doesn't, he may not realize how he's coming off, but he realizes that, that uh, Dalton doesn't intend it that way. How'd you like the uh, juxtaposition between where Dalton lives and where Cliff Booth lives? Because right. you, you get to see all these fancy things. They're, they're in the heart of Hollywood, right? And they're, everything is, is so interesting to look at and you get back to Dalton's house and everything is nice. And then, now Booth is like, well, you know, uh, I guess I'll see you tomorrow. I'll, I'll head home. Follows him all the way back to where he lives. And man, he like lives out in the boonies and mm -hmm. there's like nothing around. It's like some beat down trailer. And mm -hmm. I mean, he has he has a, a dope dog, though. That dog is smart. Brandy. Yeah. Yeah. Well trained. Mm -hmm. A pit bull. It was. Mm hmm. I, I wanted to mention the cinematography too because I love I don't know what it is, but I love when they mount the, the camera yes. like behind the, yeah. the two front seats and you're just like driving down the road and you get to see almost see like their perspective of yep. like driving and I, I love that. Me too. They do it twice. Like they do it with Booth as he's heading home and they do it with Polanski and, and Tate as they're driving around. Yeah. Yeah. Zipping around and they're and yeah, absolutely. So 
yeah, that exhilarating ride you get to kind of join him for. And so I guess he, he kind of, he does live that, that life that he seems to want to live. Right. And mm-hmm. it's being a stunt man. Yeah. He takes his, takes his lickens, but he seems perfectly fine with. Well, I, I think another aspect of what, what makes his life kind of sad is that Booth struggles to find stunt work because of the rumors that he allegedly murdered his wife. And, and I think also generally because he, he kind of rubs people the wrong way. I think he's a little socially awkward as well. And I think the only person that truly understands him is probably Rick. To a certain extent. Yeah. But I think that what I, what makes him so um, likable, so charismatic is, yeah, he may rub people the wrong way, but it's only because he's being his authentic self. Whereas everybody else is trying to be, you know, nicey, nicey. He's not willing to, it's like he, his, he, he sticks with his principles. He'll straight up tell the truth. He'll fucking, he'll fucking tell Bruce Lee that he's not, he doesn't think he's that badass. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then fucking throw him into the car and prove the point. <laughs> I mean, oh, knowing man. he's going to risk his job, he could have totally played that part, but he is older at this point, you know? He's older, so he, yeah, who knows? Who knows if he gave a fuck back when he was younger, anyway? But at this point, he certainly doesn't, and he's just—he all he cares about is just living an authentic life. And there's something to truly respect about that, even if you don't get along with the guy. I think that that's uh, that's commendable for sure. I, that was for the Green Hornet or something, right? Dalton, I think, was on the Green Hornet, and then Booth was. He was looking for a, a spot on that show. And so I think that's when mm-hmm. Dalton convinces Kurt Russell's character uh, to to he's like, just fucking put him in like a suit and he'll be an extra, you know, and if you need a, a, a stunt double, boom, he's there. So he was like, fine. And so he gave him a costume and that's when Bruce Lee is just backstage and he's just gloating, you know, and he's he's yeah, fucking talking yeah. in his metaphors like he, philosophizing. Yeah. yeah. How he's known for. He was like listening to the story, just like everyone else backstage and everyone else was kind of like enthralled by the story. But Booth was just like, I don't know. I'm not impressed. I'll yeah, see what. Yeah. Bullshit. Yeah. And yeah. so um, Lee kind of took offense to it and he was like, all right, well, if you don't think I'm the real deal, then I guess I'll have to show you. He expected to to really kick this guy's ass. And he actually, you know, he got that jumping kick to the chest and knocked Booth down. But he's like, all right, you want to try that again? We're expecting like how bad the retaliation was going to be. No. And I, that's why it's one of the scenes that I laughed really hard at, like straight up out loud, laughed hard um, because it's just, it's a gnarly one, dude. That, that, that that's fucking that's, embarrassing too. It's embarrassing. It's for all those, all those reasons. Yeah, absolutely. You know, looking back now that you mentioned it now that you, when he took one uh, by, from Bruce Lee, it was almost as though, cause he didn't react. Cause you know, he could have the way that he does the second time it comes. Probably could have dodged it, but I think he wanted to see what he, what he was exactly, capable of. Exactly. Exactly. He wanted to see what, what, what would a kick from him take? What would it, what, what would it feel like? All right. And, and you even gets to size him up like, okay, like in a real, like in an MMA fight, for instance, you know, where we talked about like, or I, at least I think I've said to you before where I, I think the first round is oftentimes you're, you're measuring the opponent, right? You're trying to see the distance. Mm-hmm. You're trying to see how they react to certain things. So you're really testing them out first and, and, and taking some hits from them. So, you know, what you're, you know, you're not trying to take a hit from them, but you're, you're feeling it as it's happening. Right. So he took a kick to see what this guy's all about. It's almost like right here. It's almost like saying, okay, go ahead. Give me your best shot. So he gives him his best yeah. shot and he's like, okay, try and it again. I think it will be a fun conversation piece as well, because you can be like, Hey, I know you won't believe it, but. I took a fucking jumping kick to the chest from Bruce Lee once. <laughs> and then I threw his ass into a car. <laughs> <laughs> oh and I-, I liked how they did it because um, no one actually won the fight. No. Because it was it was kind of like a stalemate. You know, they were like kind of like counting each other in the, mm-hmm. the third round. But eventually, you know, it got broken up. And um, Kurt Russell's wife in the movie 
I don't know if you knew this, but she's actually a stunt double. Oh, I didn't know that. No, that's no. Zoe Bell. So she's in Death Proof. She is a uh, like a stunt double as well. But um, yeah, apparently she's she's done some uh, stunt double work for Quentin Tarantino before, and he thought she just had such a likable personality, mm-hmm. Zoe uh, the person. So he was like, I want to fucking like. I, I want to showcase that. I want to star you as a, an actual character, not just a person getting thrown through a window or something. You know? Right, right. I, I liked her in the in that scene where she's just bitching like that, and because you you wonder like, you know, Randy's afraid of of pissing her off the whole time before he lets Brad Pitt sign on, uh, lets Booth sign on, and so so you're like, okay, you're like, oh man, she must be, you know, she's steer steer clear of my wife though, you know, and he's like, oh sure, sure, so. She comes, he doesn't go looking for her. She finds him and he, of course, he fucks her car up too. <laughs> On top of the fact that she already didn't like him because of that rumor of like killing right. a wife or whatever. And she was like, well, I'm a wife. Like, are you fucking kill me too? And then it turns out the car that he threw Bruce Lee into and fucked up was her car. So <laughs> needless to say, he was fired. Yeah, he was fired. Yeah, that was just, that was, <laughs> I thought she did a great job. I thought she was fine. I didn't realize she was a stunt woman. She did yeah. a great job. Of course, we're introduced to Sharon Tate and her husband, uh, Roman Polanski. They rented and moved into the house next door. I guess it's it's more like behind Dalton's house, but it's like up, up on like a little hill, you know, the long driveway and everything. Right. That night, we're, we're introduced to them. Um, Tate and Polanski attend a celebrity-filled party at the Playboy Mansion. So it's revealed by Steve McQueen, played by Damian Lewis, that Jay Sebring played by Emil Hirsch, maybe Sharon's hairstylist and best friend. But before that, he was actually engaged to Sharon before she broke it off to Mary Polanski. And this actually is all true. Hmm. These are all actual events. Well, except for the Steve McQueen part, that's hearsay. The whole relationship between Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring is actually true. I was reading about that and I was like, huh, that is, it's an interesting dynamic. It's, it's a, it's like an odd and a bit awkward love triangle going on there, you know? Right. Cause he's still around. He still hangs out with her. He's still her best friend. Right. I feel like he's actually with Sharon more than Roman is. Yeah. Cause you know, Roman's like off making movies and stuff and he's always gone and he's, he's like kind of like, you know, involved in his work and then Sharon and Jay just kind of, oh, let's go have fun. Let's go have uh, lunch together. You know? Yeah, exactly. It made me wonder like what, why did she choose Roman Polanski? That was a question I wrote down when I saw that scene and you know i was just like oh okay i was interested in that dynamic too because later on if you don't know about all the controversy with roman polanski you know he was involved in in uh some weird relationships after sharon tate's death Mm -hmm. i was just wondering like what is it about him that kind of attracts these young girls and like I was looking up how he was when he was uh, he, he was making the, that movie with Sharon Tate. I think that's how they first met. He was oh. he was creating like some sort of like vampire movie. Their two characters have a romantic relationship in that movie. Maybe he was just thought of as like a really down to earth director or something back then. I don't know if maybe he was considered really attractive in his younger years or what, but. I don't know. I don't. Th- I don't know if it's even that. I mean, but here, okay. So one of the thing is, well, I guess one of the characters, the one that that Steve McQueen is talking to, says, "Well, she certainly has a type, right? They both look so similar. They're like kind of, they're boyish. Yeah, boyish. Exactly, boyish brunette." And you like the line that Steve McQueen gives? He's just like, "Yeah, I never had a chance. I never had a chance. Exactly." <laughs> and there she is, just dancing again. 
Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. Both, I mean, were were had money, right? Both were killing it. So I, I think she was like on the rise, and then Roman was already a well-established director. He was making bank already. It could have been money, I guess, that made him more attractive. But I just feel like in general, he he attracted like really young girls. Shortly after Sharon's death, I think it was like four or five years. That's when he was caught up in this uh, rape scandal thing with a 13 year old. Yeah. Yeah. And which I think he's still kind of like fleeing from the US for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He can't come back as far as I know. And I think even other people involved in the film industry have said like they're kind of on Polanski's side. I think Tarantino even he defended Polanski. A long time ago. And then the girl who was, you know, 13 when she first met Polanski. But then um, I think this by this point, she was already a a young adult. Um, She said that it wasn't consensual and that it was basically like, if nothing else, it was statutory. Oh, right, right. Of course. She was saying that I hope Tarantino doesn't continue kind of like putting his foot in his mouth and saying all these things that he doesn't have any business talking about because he wasn't there. He doesn't know. Tarantino actually did respond to that Mm. uh, i think like a year later and he was like you know you're right i have no business commenting about this because i wasn't there i didn't see anything happen i guess he was saying that he just wanted to say something controversial so that way he could look like the cool guy that's like oh look at this guy you know like stirring Mm. up some shit (laughs) so he but he he realized that he's like this yeah you got to kind of be careful with what you say because it can come to bite you in the ass later so yeah uh, good for him for for owning up to that too that that uh that's important as well because yeah he really had no place in making those kinds of comments as well but yeah, definitely a controversial person. I mean, it's interesting because you have Polanski who's controversial after this time, this period of time. Uh, I guess controversial because of his movies in, uh, in and of themselves, right? And Ro- Rosemary's Baby was definitely controversial. Somebody says in in the movie, they're like, that's the guy that made Rosemary's Baby, you know? And he's my name. Na- I think it was Dalton. He's like, he made Rosemary's Baby. They pull up. That's what oh. it is. I think they pull up to the house and he's like, oh, dude, the that's guy right. who made Rosemary's Baby is my neighbor now. And that's when he's talking about owning a house versus renting and how Polanski's renting. Yeah, there's a whole love triangle thing between Polanski, Sharon Tate, and Jay Sebring. But the, the weird thing is Jay Sebring, I don't know if he like lives with them or he just comes over all the time, but Roman has no issue with it. And if anything, I think he likes the fact that she has like a, a best friend, a companion, and, and someone that's really going to look after her. That's interesting. He's he's so self confident. He's not even he's not even threatened. He's like, I have no reason to be jealous. I'm I am who I am. Dude was wearing this crushed velvet fucking badass. I don't know. Look like a. I don't even know how you would describe that. The way the sleeves were were kind of loose, almost like a pirate. You know what I'll describe it as? It looks like a straight up Austin Powers outfit. It did. It looked like an Austin Powers outfit with like that that um that blouse, the frilly, that's kind of frilly yeah, blouse, on it. dude. I'm like, <laughs> dude, that, that's just that's he's just bees who he bees. And I thought it was a sick ass outfit with that sporty car that he was riding around in, dude. I was like, dang, he's just that's that's who that guy was. I kept expecting done. A couple of fun facts, actually, about the Playboy Mansion. This was actually shot at the real Playboy Mansion. So it wasn't a set. And uh, secondly, Brenda and I are big fans of the that old reality TV show, The Girls Next Door. 
So we got to see a lot of the mansion and like the inner workings of Playboy from that show. Mm. Two of Hugh Hefner's girlfriends, Bridget and Holly, started their own podcast covering that TV show. So if uh, anyone out there is interested in recapping The Girls Next Door, then uh, go check out their podcast called Girls Next Level. Right on. So the next day, while fixing Dalton's TV antenna on the roof, Booth recalls, we already talked about that, the... Uh, the Green Hornet, right? <laughs> so while he's up there basically daydreaming, who the fuck shows up? Charles Manson. Was, was he driving like an ice cream truck type of thing? Right. It was an ice cream. It was a legitimate ice cream truck. <laughs> it was like a broke down ice cream truck. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you, you really know who he is until he's uh walks up to the house right and he's like he's like oh yeah i'm looking for the previous owners or i don't even know if he actually knows the previous owners or if that was just like a a ruse or something mm. sebring answers the door and he's just like no we this isn't the house anymore and we don't know where they went so he's just like oh, all right sorry to bother you i mean do you think he was he was actually looking for the previous owner or do you think he was just kind of scoping the place out I'm not sure. You know, I'm, I don't know enough about that. I'll, I, I will say that I did look into the, the, the murders and I saw that, yeah, prior to Polanski owning that home, those, those people that he's looking for actually did live there before. I'm not sure if he went there with the intention of really actually finding them. And maybe it's just, this is just Tarantino's interpretation of it. Maybe that, that moment when he comes up and asks for them, he doesn't leave. You know, he's, he's just sorry to bother you only after um, Sharon Tate comes to the door and says, who is it? You know, what's going on? For those listening that don't know the story about the Manson family, could you give like a, a briefing about why is Charles Manson so bad and who are the Manson family? Right. So, yeah, Charles Manson basically formed a cult. He was this really uh, charismatic person himself was like attracting young women he had, there were a lot of of young women who were who actually got into this cult with him and uh i'm not sure if they i can't say they all slept with him but i know that some did that was part of the thing um with him the initiation with them. It, right, i'm not sure if it was initiation or if it just kind of later on just evolved into oh this is just what's going to happen now but i feel like in a lot of ways it's it's kind of similar to like in more recent times it's like the nexium cult Right. With uh, what's it, Ray Neary? He was he was very charismatic, and I think he slept with a lot of the the girls that joined Nexium as well. That became an initiation thing, um, and they would get branded by him. Was also part of the thing, so that was just a step further. But yeah, so Charles Manson was this uh, cult leader riding on the waves of this hippie culture, hippie vibe, and the way that the Manson murders went down was it was like he believed. He was interpreting lyrics of Beatles songs, uh, other other songs of that time as well. And the oh, one that that's he, right, yeah. The one that he believed uh, was the. Well, I guess he he never really. I guess I, I, when I when what research I did do, didn't really say anything like he had never specifically said Helter Skelter or something like that. But but the the lead prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi, um, when he was when Charles Manson was on trial, said that that's what he had been constantly referring to was was uh, helter skelter the beatles song helter skelter is that beatles song right he believed that what that meant his interpretation of it was that there was going to be this race war because um 
he believed that black men were not going to have access to white women. It was this really convoluted thing where he thought that they were going to, and, and then black men were going to rebel because they're going to want to have access to the white women and all this weird stuff. So he had just really, he was really out there. He had like several hits almost like happening at around the same time, right? Right. Because there was quite a, quite a, a large group of, of these people. And it really didn't take much. I mean, honestly, they went into the, the, the ones that uh, committed the murders, JC Bring, Sharon Tate, and and uh the heiress to the Folger company i forgot right name. the heiress to the Folger company and her boyfriend who was a friend of uh of polanski's some innocent people murdered that night all for the sake of this guy so that's that's essentially what the charles that the manson murders were was he sent his little disciples he convinced them that they needed to do this and so that's why he was tried and convicted was he it was proven he was he was tied to those murders. Did you notice that one of the cult members text? Did he look familiar to you? <laughs> it was Elvis. It was Elvis, baby. It was Elvis, baby. Yeah, uh-huh. I, I had no idea. Like I, I was looking up the actor and I was like, why does he look so damn familiar? Because he looks way different with his long hair and like the facial hair and stuff. Right. And yeah, sure enough. That was that was uh, who played Elvis in the the Elvis movie. I also wanted to ask you, what did you think of Manson's like outburst on his way back to his his ice cream truck <laughs> what was his outburst uh, he rolls up to that cul-de-sac uh-huh. and he walks the rest of the way up the driveway right and booth is on the roof he's still fixing the, the antenna and you know he's kind of daydreaming about when he whooped <laughs> bruce lee's ass mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you know he's he's watching because it's a cul-de-sac and you know no one really passes by unless you're like there for a reason and so i think they're like who the fuck is this guy mm-hmm. and so on his way back they kind of lock eyes from across the cul-de-sac and booth you know he doesn't he's not reacting or anything he's just kind of like watching him and uh manson's just like ah! and he just starts doing some weird shit waving his arms and screaming and stuff and he's just like fuck you and like gets in his car and drives off booth was like what the fuck was that? <laughs> yeah. He's saying what the audience is thinking. Right, right. Yeah. I do remember him taking the sip of beer. I just forgot about the. Wow. Okay. So strange. Not long after that, Dalton is cast as the main heavy in the pilot for a TV Western called Lancer. That's where he strikes up the conversation with co-star Trudy Frazier, played by Julia Butters. This little girl was a great actress oh absolutely yeah her performance right here you know her her interaction with dalton and how he's almost like learning a lot from this little girl Mm -hmm. i think he's seeing this confidence in her and he's just almost like trying to imitate it himself Mm -hmm. what i heard was that trudy was inspired by a young jody foster which i could see Uh, yeah totally I gained a lot of respect for Jody after seeing Taxi Driver because she mm-hmm. was amazing in that movie. Yeah, I would say she's probably the best character in that movie. In Taxi Driver, yeah, she's she's for again captivating. She just owns who she is, owns her space. She's just so confident in that role. You really see her as that character, and it blows you away because she's so young. And that's how I felt when I saw this actress as well. So it reminded you of Jodie Foster. It reminded me of Natalie Portman in mm, The Professional, which we the professional, spoke of yeah. earlier. Yeah. So here's this young one on screen and just holding her own. I, I, I just actually, I, it pulled me out of the narrative a little bit because I, I'm just watching her interacting with DiCaprio. She's not, she didn't, if she was intimidated at all, she didn't seem that way during the scenes. She was like holding her not own. Not starstruck or anything. Right. Huh? Yeah. She's just doing her thing. She doesn't give a shit, you know, whatever. She's, 
reading her book and whatever and get, getting annoyed even by this guy you know who's past his prime now she doesn't even really know dude i was fucking getting annoyed because you know she's just chilling there reading her book and he walks up and he's just uh hey, can i can i sit next to you oh yeah sure and then he's just like oh oh oh, oh, oh sorry <laughs> i'm like yeah, god yeah. damn can you can you leave now yeah exactly it's just funny how, how tarantino does that scene because yeah the chair's creaky as well and he's just shifting uncomfortably in it and you know grabs the book and this other down and flips coughing it over and yeah coughing up a lung and all that jazz and he certainly doesn't feel comfortable by himself which is i think why the, he's always hanging out with uh cliff whenever he can when he's not memorizing lines and all that kind of stuff i think he's not comfortable with silence with with who he is because then he's alone with his thoughts and he's again a very insecure person so um here's this little girl and it's like I don't know, even even for this little girl, even this he wants this little girl to, to like him, which also, you know, when he gets to know her and sees the caliber of act- actor she is, because she explains why she's an actor, not an actress and blah, 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 and then goes on and what she's reading and how she's really like this deep person. You know what I mean? Really, really. I even love that that interaction where she's just like, I hate when people use terms like pumpkin puss. Yeah. <laughs> But we'll we'll talk about that another time or something like that. We'll talk about that later. She she let him get away with that. Yeah, one. yeah. She she uh, as uh, Walt, Walter would say from Breaking Bad, you put a pin in it. She put a pin in it. We'll we'll talk about this later. Dude, I love the way that they handled that one shot. Timothy Oliphant's character walks in, and you know he's interacting with Dalton's character, and you know Dalton's playing the heavy. Mm-hmm. They're they're like in that saloon or whatever, and the camera's just bouncing back and forth between the the two characters. Like it, it just flows right into it. So you're like, you're not entirely sure you're, like what you're watching, but then um, it becomes apparent that it's, it's part of that Lancer TV show when Dalton fucks up the line and he's just like, he's like, Oh fuck. And so that, you know, they just like jump right back into the scene. He eventually gets through it, but he stumbles a couple times and man, he like lets himself have it in his trailer. That meltdown. Mm-hmm. It was so entertaining to watch. It was, uh, but I also saw it as so so what's the word on point with the character just the way that he behaves he would be that type of person the way that tarantino wrote it and the way that that dicaprio um a bit of a perfectionist you know Uh, perfectionist to right but but to be so hard on on himself it 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 shows that that's why he's so insecure is because he he's beating up on himself he's not he doesn't hold himself the way that brad pitt holds himself there's a definite difference between the two of them and i think that's something that DiCaprio respects and appreciates in his friend because he himself is not nearly as authentic. He's always, uh, he's kind of skittish, you know, like looking over the shoulder to see if she's looking at him, you know, when they're in the chairs together. And, and yet here he is this, uh, fantastic actor, you know, on screen to get the, and he gets a compliment from her, which is what he's, what he wanted too. you know what I mean? As tough as he tries to portray himself at times. And it's kind of sad to see him be so tough on himself, but I think he he understands himself so well that that's how he needs to be to get those excellent performances because he comes back, right? And so Mm -hmm. they film a different scene and he fucking knocks it out of the park with this one. Yeah. I think he he outacts pretty much everyone in that scene. I think they're all blown away. And that's that's that line that you you saw in the trailer. Mm-hmm, exactly exactly That's where the she best leans in acting i've ever seen <laughs> right exactly and, and and uh that's why that hits different because in the trailer when she says it 
I don't know any of the, I didn't know that they had a previous conversation. So it's just like some little girl who may not know anything about anything saying this to him. And he breaks mm-hmm. down crying for that, from that line, uh, what she just tells him, but knowing that, that he respects her because he has already had an interaction with her and, uh, and uh, she's a person of substance. He's so hard on himself and the fact that he, he knows what he's capable of and that he was able to draw that out of himself and really deliver. And people were, they were reassuring him that you are a great actor. You're not this washed up has been. And he's just like, fuck man, you know, like I still got it. Yeah, I still exactly. got it. It's just, you know, it's, it's not as easy as it used to be, but I still got it. Yeah. That's a good point. He does motivate it's because, um, some people could see that and think that's the thing that should motivate them, but it doesn't necessarily, that approach doesn't necessarily work for everyone. You know, it's, it's about, um, I don't know, I've been listening to Dr. Gabor Mate. And one of the things he talks about is, is compassion. You can only be authentic when you can, when you are compassionate with yourself, because only when you're compassionate with yourself, can you begin to, um, accept yourself? Can you see, can you see yourself and be, and truly be authentic, be your authentic self? But you can only do that only if you, to the extent that you know yourself and are compassionate. So he was not being very compassionate with himself, but you know what? Sometimes, fuck, it does take being that way with yourself, right? He doesn't beat himself up and then fucking leave and and be a little bitch about it and like drive off and just be like, I'm not going to act anymore and quit, right? He beats himself up because like you said, he, he wants to get something out of himself. Maybe compassion isn't what he needed just then. Maybe that was just the fire he needed a light under his ass to do it. At any rate, that that performance is fucking dope, dude. That, that that's that that's my favorite. I'll be honest, that's my favorite scene of the whole movie. That one Damn. stuck out to me. Yeah, with him with the little girl, because I'm just watching DiCaprio playing a guy playing. I'm the dude playing the dude disguised as another dude. I've always found it so so impressive when actors can play like struggling actors. You already know that you're an actor, and so you know that he's playing this role. And it's not really who he's supposed to be, but like the fact that you you just you're so drawn into this character. I'm like, holy fuck! I forgot for a second that I'm watching a movie about an actor playing in a, a TV show. Right, <laughs> right. But but it, what pulls you out of it as well? What, what what reminds you of it? Which is so beautifully written into the into the movie itself is the fact that he fucks up his lines, right? Because then you see how again how how he fumbles. You see the other side of it. You see the other side of it. You see the actor behind that actor behind behind the one being portrayed as the as the heavy right you suddenly you see oh he's line line you know what i mean just embarrassed in front of everybody if we all just saw his that that performance with the little girl on his lap um we would have been like okay cool you know that was you know well done but i think the fact that you get to see the the entire process you get to see how the 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 meat is made you know essentially Mm -hmm. because it's like it doesn't come easy and they're human. They make mistakes as well. And <laughs> are you going to rise to the occasion or are you, are you just going to let it like kind of define who you are? And, and yeah. Dalton was like, no, like I know I'm better than this. And I think that's where the frustration came from. Yeah, definitely. After that, he was, he was like, oh, are you all right? I kind of like, you know, forcefully you tossed you to the ground and she's like, no, nope, I brought my elbow pads. Yeah. She was so prepared. <laughs> exactly. Again, just, just, nothing throws her off you know she's she's cool i really enjoy that character because she was just like all about the role and she was dedicated and she's a true professional yeah the character is cool but 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 uh, as well yeah, the actress she just she her performance is great dude she is that person in, in that role she did a great job 
It's funny that that was your favorite scene of the entire movie because we're coming up on my favorite section of this movie. This is when Booth, you know, having driven past Pussycat a couple times and, you know, she's like, <laughs> she's like, oh, you're trying to hitchhike. Sorry, I'm going the opposite direction. And, you know, she makes her, her the whole faces and stuff. Yeah. So he's finally heading the same direction she's heading. Right. She's very excited to, to finally meet him. They kind of caught each other's eye and she was very, she was very curious about him. Mm -hmm. He finally picks her up and, you know, asks her where she's going and she's heading out to uh, spawn ranch. And what was cool about the scene was that you don't immediately understand the significance of spawn ranch. So, you know, it from like her perspective, because that's where like the Manson family is, is kind of like taking refuge or whatever. Like that's what they made their home. Mm -hmm. All that you hear from Booth is that he's like, oh, I know where that is. Yeah, I'll, I'll take you. And so uh, they're heading out there. You find out that this is where he used to film for uh, Bounty Law. Mm. He actually has a reason why he's heading up there. So sure, you know, part of it is like he wants to help this girl. I'll do you solid. I'll, I'll drive up there. But he also knows the owner of Spawn Ranch. He knows, he personally knows George Spawn. And so I think he has this idea. He's like, why are you, this little girl, why are you going to Spawn Ranch? There's an old man that lives up there by himself. And I'm pretty sure that there's something weird going on with this whole dynamic. Mm -hmm. But you don't immediately know that until he gets there. And so he gets out of the car and, and she's like excited. I think Pussycat was trying to recruit him. Charles is going to love you. Like you'll be a great asset to us and everything. But um, dude these people just start coming out of the woodwork. It was, I mm -hmm. loved the way that this, this scene was handled because it was fucking eerie and it was mm -hmm. creepy and it was mm -hmm. unsettling. You're like, what the fuck is going on here? Why are there so many people? What are they doing here? Who are they? And what have they done with George? Does some shady shit happen to George? Mm -hmm. We're about to find out. Yeah, exactly. But again, his character is, is so authentically himself that he's not afraid of confrontation. He's just like, I'm going to check this out make sure that my, my old, my old friend George is, is good, you know? So yeah. So he goes in. Anyone there. else in that situation would have been like, right. Nah, I, I'm good. Like I'm going to call the cops if nothing else, but I mean, he's outnumbered for fuck's sake. He's like looking at all these people and he's thinking, he's thinking, yeah, there's some shady shit going down here. And instead of just thinking, oh, I'm going to get the fuck out of here. Instead he goes, I want to see for myself if, if George is okay. I was fucking curious. I want to see where this goes. I don't know what is about to happen right now. Mm -hmm. You got the people like in the house on top of the hill and they're like watching TV or whatever. Oh, also a uh, shout out to Sydney Sweeney because she was one of the uh, members of the Manson family. Oh, right, 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 right. A la euphoria. Mm -hmm. I thought for sure Booth was going to have to just force his way through, but... He was very stern, you know, he was taking no for an answer. That's side note why I was going to say, I don't think Charles Manson really would have actually wanted him because he was too, he's, he doesn't play by other people's rules. He, he is who he is. So Booth, Booth would not have gone along with the program. He eventually uh, gets past Squeaky. Fun fact about that George Spawn character was that Burt Reynolds was originally cast as George Spawn passed away in September before filming his scenes and was replaced by Bruce Dern. And I was just thinking that... Had Burt Reynolds actually been able to play George Spawn in this, he would have just brought this extra gravitas to the role, you know, and to such a small role. But I, I feel like he would have just made it more impactful with his natural charisma. Exactly. There you go, dude. That's that's the word I was going to use. Natural charisma. And the guy was a charmer, man. 
Yeah, absolutely. Versus Bruce Stern, who is the kind of antithesis of Charmer. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a fine performance, I guess, but like I, I didn't think it was anything special. And I just felt like, man, the possibilities if if Burt Reynolds was the one that that was in bed and like turns around, you know, and has an attitude, <laughs> it would have been way different. Way different. Yeah, would have had an attitude. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. You know, Bruce Stern's more of like a whiner. I mean, himself, he always played an antagonist. Like uh, I think of the movie Cowboys. That was the first time. I I'd ever seen mm. Bruce Dern and that was a John Wayne film and he played the bad guy in that and a young Bruce Dern and he's a dick in that movie and like you know he gets busted in his nose for being an asshole that's basically what you have there that's interesting I don't remember I don't remember Bruce Dern ever being a protagonist in the movies so you have a guy like uh, Burt Reynolds who always played typically the protagonist and was charmer versus Bruce Dern who was not the charmer and was always the antagonist and antagonizing even oh another cool thing about this movie So Burt suggested to Tarantino after he found out that Brad Pitt was cast as Booth, he suggested to Tarantino that someone utters the line, you're pretty for a stunt guy, which is actually used in the movie when Bruce Lee says it to Booth. What? That that's like almost like him paying tribute to Bert by actually adding that line that he suggested to him earlier. Uh, (laughs) Ah, Yeah, so in a way, he's, he is in the movie in some sense. Yeah. Would have been a different scene for sure. Would have been a different different feel overall for him to, to be. It's, it's unfortunate. Right, to have been bothered by uh, this guy coming in to check on him or whatever. Mm-hmm. I also love the line where he's just like, squeaky, is that the, the pretty redhead outside? And he's like, I'm blind. I don't know. <laughs> I can't see what she looks like. <laughs> I got a chuckle out of that line. Yeah, yeah, that was good. The uneasiness doesn't even end there because when Booth comes out of that hut, basically, he's like getting ready to leave. And they're all kind of yelling at him. They're like, you, you need to get out of here. He's like, oh, I'm with you on that one. I'm leaving. But he has a flat tire because someone punctured his front wheel. It was some guy named Clem or something like that fucking hillbilly looking dude. Mm-hmm. So he makes him change the tire, which was pretty awesome. Yeah, that was good. That punch probably made him look better, though, honestly. Oh shit! <laughs> Seriously, that guy looked like yeah. For as tough as they were, that's what's so beautiful about the whole thing. For as tough as they came off, and as scary as that, as intimidating as that scene kind of felt, like oh shit, he's he's in over his head. This is a fucked up. These people, there's a ton of these people, and he's like, no, he then he do a goddamn follows, thing. Oh yeah, no, he fucks that full up, and so it's just a funny way for it to all end. Like it, it ends the opposite way that you thought when you when he got there that it would go. Uh, after that, Dalton and Booth head to Italy, and that's where Dalton, um, he actually takes up that that offer for the Spaghetti Western, and he, mm-hmm. he plays in Nebraska Gym, and I guess during that period, Dalton also films like a couple other movies, and so, you know, he, he's making some good money over there, and he actually meets uh, his wife, so he marries an Italian starlet, Francesca Capucci. Unfortunately, around that time, he also informs Booth that he can no longer afford his services. Mm-hmm. So that, that was pretty heartbreaking. It was. It was. End of an era. Yeah. I mean, I felt bad for the two men because they, you know, they've been through the thick and thin together. And of course, we know that nothing lasts forever, good or bad. But mm-hmm. when you become comfortable with a certain dynamic, it's just it's it's hard to let that go. Exactly. And, you know, he's uh, Booth is so understanding and you know himself had been married again as i mentioned before so it's uh he knows how it goes he knows how these things go yeah it's definitely sad for sure on both sides but 
it seems worse for Dalton because you know he's he's definitely more emotional and yes he doesn't hide it as well as Booth. So if Booth was feeling sad, he doesn't ever show it. But Dalton is just like fuck, dude. I'm so sorry. Like you know, I mm-hmm. I wish we could have just kept doing our thing. You know how we've been doing this whole time, but now he has a wife to take care of. So it's almost like he got bumped out. He doesn't feel betrayed, like how you said. He he's understanding and you know he gets it. Yeah, he gets it. So they eventually return to L.A. from Italy around uh, 1969, and Dalton and Booth go out for drinks to commemorate their time together, then go back to Dalton's house, and that's when uh, Booth finally smokes that PCP lace cigarette. So I guess it it does like a little flashback, and it shows that he like bought it from like one of those hippie girls or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was PCP. I thought it was LSD. Something like I thought it was PCP. Dipped. It, it, it was like some sort of like drug infused cigarette. Yeah, a psychedelic for sure. He decides that, uh, you know, he's going to smoke this thing while he's walking his dog. So he takes Brandy for a walk around the block and he actually passes by this uh, conspicuous looking car that rolls up and it's actually packed with four members of the Manson family. So they arrive in the cul-de-sac preparing to murder everyone in the Polanski residence. Mm-hmm. But. Dalton overhears the car's loud exhaust as he's like trying to make like margaritas and shit. So he's just like, what the fuck? So he goes (laughs) super annoyed and he's just like, dude, it's like midnight, just past midnight. And he's like, you roll up with this hunk of junk fogging up the entire cul-de-sac because all this exhaust that's coming out of it. He like rips them a new asshole and tells them to leave. And so they're like, all right, whatever. As taxpayer dollars and everything. I don't pay taxes. You know, do all this bullshit. Drinking from the blender. (laughs) margarita with, with his like robe all open <laughs> and his robe exactly yeah so great so they leave but i think that's when they decide to change their target like who the fuck was that asshole that was yelling at me and so they recognize that he is a famous actor himself and that they grew up kind of watching him on bounty law right i believe mm-hmm. one of the four i think it was sadie she's she convinces them all to basically like attack dalton's house and kill him because Hollywood taught them to murder. So kill the people that taught them to kill. Flower Child, she's actually reluctant to go through with the murder and she ends up deserting them, speeding off in the car. So they're kind of stranded, but they still decide to go through with uh, their new plan. <laughs> that was hilarious. She straight up leaves with their only ride and then bolt, bolts and they're just like, they were creeping. Yep. And they're like, shit, now we're, now we're three. Then there were three and they're just walking up the same <laughs> It was so comical. And shout out to Flower Child because uh, that was played by Maya Hawk. Yeah, that's right. For, for those that don't know, Maya is the daughter of Ethan Hawk and Uma Thurman. Mm-hmm. I think she was relatively unknown at this time. Like, I don't know if anyone knew that they even had a daughter, honestly. Like, I didn't even know that they had a daughter until mm. I think uh, Stranger Things. She's so charismatic in Stranger Things and she does such a, a great performance and after looking her up, I'm like, holy shit. Now I recognize her. She was from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, it's, it's crazy to think that like Sydney Sweeney was part of the Manson family and so was Maya Hawk. So that's that's pretty dope. They're both in this movie before they like really blew up. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think of the attack on Dalton's house? So now that they, they changed their target from the Polanski residence to Dalton's residence, you know, they just kind of like storm in from like different uh, entrances. And uh, I think by that point, Booth returns right from walking Brandy. Yeah, he had just gotten into the house and uh, shortly thereafter they get in. But 
noticeably he does not lock the door and i thought i wonder if that's just how it always was back then or whatever maybe he just forgot that could be it too but he doesn't lock the front door so they come they open it up no problem basically the only people in the house are booth and francesca kabucci or capucci because um she was like sleeping in the the bedroom and dalton is actually he's oblivious to everything because he's just doing his thing floating in the pool in the backyard with his headphones on so he Mm -hmm. he has no idea what's going on yeah listening to the radio also around this time it's important to note that booth is like tripping balls so he's 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 feeling he smoked that cigarette yeah he's he's feeling it all right i almost feel like this kind of worked in his favor because you know he's he was always cool calm and collected anyway but i almost feel like this was able to allow him to be even more calm and kind of like really see what's happening in front of him yeah he was he was entertained by this whole (laughs) scenario in fact he's like giggling when the guy's pointing the gun at him and stuff and he points the finger gun back at him he's like wait i know you you were from the ranch yeah exactly now they're now they're uh made right now they they've been made and it's funny because tex recognized dalton and so that's why they start targeting him but then when he comes in booth recognizes tex and right. so it's like they're both kind of like oh shit you know like we we all kind of like interacted before this is crazy so tex is trying to be a a, a badass whatever up until uh booth six brandy on him brandy's like mauling him and then dude this is like one of the best scenes in the entire movie is when sadie rushes booth with the knife uh-huh. she's just like ah, and starts charging at him dude he like caves her face in with that can of dog food oh dude cracks her cracks her right in the face with that that unopened can almost oh. point blank so she's about like a couple feet away and he just yeah baseball throw power dude. he's just yeah boom right in baseball the face baseball throw I, it, the, the way that it looks the way that her, her nose is fucked up in in it is it looks like the bottom of the can like the rim just clipped her right on the bridge because it's pushed in like indented it was funny too because uh the the third person katie she actually tackles booth i guess she had like a knife in hand or something so she like i don't know what she was thinking but she like tackles him over the coffee table he like finds the knife stuck in his hip or something and that like almost pisses him off he just grabs her head and he just starts smashing it into like various objects around the house. Yeah, yeah. I think she was already dead after like the third object. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he smashed her face on the on the hearth above the you know, <laughs> fireplace, the brick, right. just that like, face into red brick. Ugh, smashed. Yeah, and you're you're kind of it's a little excessive, but you're kind of like, oh yeah, fuck these people for fucking trying to do this shit. And- I don't know if this is from like blood loss or if it's from the drugs in his system, but after he kills that girl, then he finally passes out. And then the last remaining person, Sadie, who has like the the face all smashed in. Oh, yeah. She busts through the back door, like the glass sliding door into the backyard and startles Dalton. So finally, Dalton is aware of what's happening because he's just like, oh, shit. And she's shooting off the gun in the air even. Yeah. What does he do? He does what any normal person would do. Yeah. He, he runs to his shed. Right. Well, as any normal person would do, if you run to your shed when there's somebody, you know, shooting a gun in your back in your backyard, um, you you grab your flamethrower, dude. That's what you do. 
obviously. Everyone has one, you know. Everyone like, has one. Why please. would you have a, have a shed without a flamethrower? Yeah, duh. <laughs> and so he grabs this flamethrower from, which I, I guess is a, a working prop from one of his past movies, right? His like Nazi movie or whatever. Yeah, which was a great callback. That was such a fucking great, because they show him training for it earlier. Early in on movie. in the movie. Yeah. yeah, and for that role and everything. And he talks about how hot it was and everything. And He's like, did someone order some sauerkraut? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what's so funny too, because that scene was great it, when he blasts them from the top of the staircase because when that scene's happening he's relay uh, um it's al pacino's character who's his agent who's talking about that how he had just watched that movie the night before and he had talked about how i love those movies where you're doing the like that and i'm like how funny this is the guy that played scarface obviously it's just a callback to that too <laughs> and then the fact that he does it from the top of the staircase just the same way, like, say hello to my little friend. Yeah, true. He's like, you know, he says he he says a line, you know, that's the line. He says, you know. A memorable, like, one-liner, yeah. Oh, memorable one-liner. And he says, uh, what does he say? I hope you guys like sauerkraut. Yeah, <laughs> Who ordered like sauerkraut? Whatever. Something, anyway, just, yeah. Just blast him from the top of the staircase. It's so yeah. over the top and dramatic, but it was it's awesome. It's so over the top. And to what you were saying about, like, yes, <laughs> when he was being trained, I freaking love, like, how he's just like, can we do anything about that heat? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, uh, it's a flamethrower. God damn, is there anything we can do about that heat? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, what do you expect? Yeah, dude, nothing. He's like, all right. That part had me busting up. Dude, absolutely so same. But yeah, no, he, he turned, he goes to that shed, still in his robe, in swimming trunks as well, you know, because he's just in the pool. She right. fell in the pool after shooting her gun. She's still shooting. I don't I don't know. She's not shooting off a ton of rounds because it's like a little six shooter. Right? I don't even think it's like a I wouldn't expect it to have that that much ammo, but I mean she's she's still like just randomly aiming it everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's like what the fuck? So he has the presence of mind to go to his fucking shed, grab his As you would. Yeah. As you do, grab your flamethrower. You know, put the pack on your back and everything, and then just blasts her. He roasts her, roasted, toasted, and burnt to a crisp. Torches her to a crisp, and uh, so yeah, that's the end of that girl. What I love about this is Quentin Tarantino just loves to do like these really graphic and kind of unfortunate for the villains, but he like really has antagonists get fucked up in his movies. Oh yeah, absolutely, and she's the one who by the way, instigates the whole fucking thing in the first place. If it weren't for her, they wouldn't have tried to kill him. Mm. You know, we should, she has this brilliant idea. We should kill the people that taught us how to kill. Yeah. And there she is getting roasted by the very guy that she went there to kill. (laughs) So, um, you know, poetic justice. This is awesome. Which, by the way, side note, I thought this was kind of funny, but I was like, um, you're in a fucking swimming pool. Like you could at least just dip below the surface. Not that it would have really saved her much, because no matter what, when she popped back up again, right? She, uh, she, and who knows? She probably was pretty disoriented, having been cracked in the nose. I'll give her that, cracked in the face like that. But she might have been concussed too. I don't know. <laughs> it could have been, but again, it, 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 it does. It wouldn't make it all that interesting. It's just, it's just funny because you're like you're in water. You could keep dipping yourself in water. I guess I don't know. Just the whole ridiculousness of the entire situation yeah. was, I think, what made it so comical, but also so epic at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. She's in a pool oh, surrounded by water and she's getting fucking cooked, fucking roasted. So, yeah, that that was the climax of the movie. So the end of the movie sees Booth is uh, he's he's conscious and seems like he's he's OK. You know, he's he's going uh, to the hospital. He's taken away in the ambulance, but it seems like everything's going to be fine with him. 
Yeah, he's giving thumbs up. And you know, this this just kind of further solidifies their friendship because Dalton's like, he's like, man, like I'm right behind you. You know, I'm gonna come visit you in the hospital. Booth is just like, he's like, I don't worry about it. You know, like I'll be all right. Like, what are you gonna do at the hospital? They're gonna take care of me. You just stay here, take care of your wife, and uh, yeah, you know, try to enjoy the rest of the evening. Typical Cliff Booth, like he's just Mm -hmm. nothing really Mm -hmm. bothers him and. He doesn't want to be a bother to Dalton either, you know, and Dalton just feels really guilty because he's just like, you know, like if you were at home, this would have never happened to you. And, you know, you could have avoided mm-hmm. all this, but you, I kept you here. I think it, it was actually very fortunate that Booth was there because Booth saved his wife. So and yeah. inadvertently saved Sharon Tate. Yeah, he kills two of them. Yeah, and, and and save Sharon Tate exactly. Yeah, which is just that's that's so funny because he, uh, all uh, throughout the movie, you know, he's still he's he's you know looking admiringly toward the Polanski residence, but hasn't met them yet. You know, this whole time, so right, he finally gets his chance when he starts talking to Jay, comes to the gate and asks him what the hell happened. You know, and he tells him the whole story so nonchalant. You know what I mean? Just yeah, I had to had to kill them. What? That's just nuts. To them, I don't even think they ever noticed Dalton even being down there. From his perspective, he's like, "Man, you know, someday I'm gonna, I'm gonna be friends with them." You see? Yeah, yeah. Well, he just—I mean, he's—he's he's hopeful. He—he I mean, he thinks he wants to, but he's like, "Oh, but I live this close to them, and that's crazy." You know, I, I live in this town, and there they are. Those are my neighbors. But yeah, but but um, no. But she says that she she'd seen him. She knew that he was there, and that she'd been meaning to mm, pay him true. a visit and everything. So it's like she knew because she's a sweetheart, right? Like everyone says how Sharon Tate was. Yeah cared about everybody so um yeah she's she's given this warm this big warm hug when he comes up the drive and, and he begins to tell her the whole tale and everything and uh she's just make, wants to make sure that he's okay that is a wrap folks if you made it to the end of our podcast then you and your friends get to try out rick dalton's flamethrower on each other yep have fun with that one any final thoughts or closing comments um i gotta go watch it again that's a that was a good movie I, I didn't want to ask you at work what you thought of it because I know you you told me that you had seen it, but it seemed like you wanted to to save your thoughts for for the show, so I didn't want to press it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah, I definitely did want to to do that, and uh, I even felt the same way when I was talking about Hereditary and uh, Midsummer because I'm like, oh, those are movies we should probably put on the list. I said what I said, but I was like, oh man, I. Uh, I do like to typically wait till we do our podcast before I talk about that stuff. And you know, I was I was mentioning this earlier, but I just I love the aspect of the alternate history when Tarantino likes to do that in his films because when he does that in his films, it's almost like shit. Anything can happen. I don't know what's going to happen now because this mm-hmm. is like an alternate timeline that's going on here. So obviously, what should happen is not going to. And uh, I want to see where he takes it. So it's it's cool. I love how he plays off of actual history and and adds his own little flair to it. Me too. No, I, I think, and it's so funny. And again, the, the dialogue is just mm, he's just always does dialogue so well. The story's great. All of it just it was a joy to watch. Honestly, it was it was so fun. It was just it was it was a very fun movie to just hang out with. It would be fun to see it with a, a group of people actually. I don't even really know how you would describe this movie. Like if you were to just give someone like a quick synopsis about what the movie is, it's kind of difficult to explain because there's so many things happening and you know, there's different storylines and I I kind of 
compare it to Pulp Fiction because in Pulp Fiction, there's a lot of stuff happening too. And mm-hmm. it's kind of a difficult mm-hmm. movie to describe to someone. Right. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of different, different things going on all at the same time. Yeah, for sure. So it's just like, what do you, what do you say? What, what could I say to, to grab the person? Because if you just say one quick thing, if it's some, some one pithy little, whatever, it's not going to encapsulate everything that every reason why they should watch it. And uh, I'm not really sure what Tarantino really has planned for his 10th movie supposedly the final film i actually hope he steps away from westerns though because i i just feel like we know he isn't afraid to pay homage to different genres but i just feel like with django hateful eight and once upon a time they all incorporate western elements and themes and i'm ready to experience something outside of that from him again yeah, I'm, I'm eager to see what that will be. It's going to be bittersweet because there's going to be a lot of hype behind it. There's going to be a lot of expectations. This being his supposedly final film, high standards set in place. And uh, I hope I enjoy it. I hope I'm not disappointed and don't overhype it in my own mind and just kind of enjoy it for what it is. You know, what it will be. Yeah, plenty of great movies of his to, to still go back and watch and enjoy and analyze and all that stuff so i've actually been thinking about this for a while and i wanted to introduce new segment and i I, kind of wanted to test it on you and see how it goes i wanted to do like a recommendations bit towards the end of the episode Mm -hmm. i wanted to see if there's like a film or tv show that you're watching right now or you've seen recently that you really kind of wanted to advocate for and and maybe you know, like convince someone out there to go watch. Mm. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Right now, that's, 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 I think that's interesting. Sure. Because we're always kind of a, a step back, I guess. I don't know. We're always watching movies that have come out. We don't typically do movies that are like in theaters right now. Um, and since it's coming out like a... Well, you know, what? it doesn't even need to necessarily be recent. Like it could be something that you just discovered, you know, like how you're talking about Hereditary. Fair, fair point. Yeah, exactly. That's true. So funny because, uh, man, that one, oof, definitely recommend watching that one. And I, I really do think we should uh, visit that one. That That is the scariest movie I've ever seen. Personally, that's that's the scariest movie I've ever seen. Ari Aster, uh, he's on the level of a um, uh, of a Stanley Kubrick, in my opinion. Nice. Very, very complex. There's so many. I've watched uh, Midsummer twice. And uh, those those two movies really blew me away. Also watched Smile and um and barbarian and those were those were um entertaining but um they did not make me feel as unsettled as as ari aster's two films hereditary and and midsummer i also watched barbarian recently and actually watched it before you and i recommended that one to you you did you did i got a good kick out of it um it's it has a lot of dark comedy elements even though it's predominantly supposed to be creepy and unsettling and all that stuff which there's there's definitely parts in there mm-hmm. there's also parts where you're just like yeah fuck that guy <laughs> <laughs> i also saw x which the just the letter x yeah um, that one was surprisingly better than i was expecting it to be hmm. and there's also an element to that one that's uh just as unsettling as barbarian so mm. I'll, I'll recommend those two I, I wanted to do that. In fact, actually, I, I 
plan to see that X and then Pearl, which is the prequel. It's uh, yeah, it's a it's a prequel. I didn't realize that X was originally intended to be the start of a series. So they already knew it's a weird dynamic, too, because the actress that plays the main character in X is also the main character in Pearl. So she's like doubling up on her role for the same series. So it's very odd. Midsummer, I will say I did. Uh, I had I wish I hadn't even seen the trailer, man, even the trailer of Midsummer gave me an impression of what the movie was going to be like. So I was kind of mentally preparing for the trauma that was going to ensue. I went and kind of mentally prepared for it. So it definitely is a mind fuck of a movie. And uh, dude, it was hilarious. My my uh, pops, um, he was giving me a, he was giving me a trim the other day. He's a hairstylist. And so um, we're talking about it. And I was like, so what did you think of that? And he goes, we, I went with a friend of mine. We sat in the movie. We thought it was going to be um, something completely different. I asked, I forgot what he said it was going to, what he thought it was going to be like. It was going to be like a, a fun movie. There were times where we were going to get up and leave because it was just too much. And I was like, what the heck? But you stuck around. And he's like, yeah, we stuck through to the very end. Were they glad they stuck around? They kind of were. But then I asked him, I said, um, I told him I'd seen it twice in, in just a couple days. And I said, so uh, would you be down to see it again? And he's like, I, that's one movie I don't think I'll ever see again. <laughs> and I was like, dang. Oh, that's a good list. I mean, I might be a little biased because, you know, I, I did recommend a lot of those. But I think that, that probably says a lot about my taste in movies is I, I like to I tend to go for the the ones that are a little bit more scary horror thriller. It's a delight. It's definitely like whoa fuck there's a lot so great recommendations from you i'm recommending what you recommended to everybody (laughs) (laughs) two thumbs up affliction autos podcast is available on all those fancy streaming services you folks like to use of course new episodes drop on the first saturday of each month 5 a.m pacific if you enjoy our content go ahead and leave us a nice review you know yeah we won't be mad at it nah and if you like the sound of michael's voice let us know let us know (laughs) Seriously, though, (laughs) thank you so much to the listeners out there for joining Michael and I. This has been Affliction Oz Podcast, Episode 20, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And we will see you all next time. Yeah, Happy New Year.